We'll take your Bibles and let's make our way to Matthew chapter 15 for our study time this morning, Matthew chapter 15. It is really good to be standing here and to have my Bible in front of me and to not be introducing somebody. Um, I'm all for preaching uh, here in this pulpit. This is home. This is uh, where I'm meant to be, and I'm so thankful for those who have filled in for me over the last couple of weeks. I was Renee and I were talking last night and talking about today, and it's been three out of the last four weeks. Um, I haven't been able to preach, and um, that's been for your benefit, I'm sure. Variety is a good thing. Uh, I enjoy the variety. I grew and learned from Nathan and from Pastor Wickham, and uh, I trust you were encouraged by that as well. I'm also eager to know that this is my calling. This is where God has placed me, and uh, I'm a little bit defensive of this pulpit. Um, I found out just this last week that Renee and I are going to have to go away again at the end of this month, and uh, I was disappointed mainly because I have to give another paragraph of Matthew to David. Uh, that is not the desire of my heart. Um, I love when he preaches, but he's had too many paragraphs uh, given to him. Um, it's just not right. So I'll be gone on the 28th. Uh, we'll be up in Washington. Renee's oldest sister is being married. And uh, so we'll be there for that. And then we'll be back and plowing through Matthew at uh, the pace that the Lord has given us through these major section divisions. We come today to Matthew chapter 15. And uh, the really the tide turns in Matthew chapter 15. If you're new with us or if you're unfamiliar and you're forgetful like I am, uh, you have a hard time with chapter content um, in seminary. David and I were both tested on chapter content of the Bible. Uh, that is not something that comes naturally to either one of us. And if you're like me, you need constant refreshers of where we've been and where we're going. In particular, where we've been comes into play with what we will study today. We came out of the parables, the kingdom parables in Matthew chapter 13. You may remember those. Jesus cloaks the truths of the kingdom in parables. He, he does it to hide it from those who have no eyes to see, no ears to hear, no hearts to respond. It also is the benefit of those who have been radically altered and are disciples of Jesus to receive those parables and to understand the kingdom realities. All of that comes as a result of what took place in chapter 12, where Matthew brought to us an, a theme of rejection of Jesus. You remember in chapter 12, what is commonly known as the unpardonable sin, where the Pharisees joined their voices to the rejection of Jesus that had been their standard operating procedure and claimed that he was doing what he was doing, not in the power of God's spirit, but in the power of Satan. It was in chapter 12 that the rejection of Jesus really ramps up. And we, we see a momentum shift. And Matthew presents to us the king of heaven, rejected and yet gracious in his ministry. We're going to see him doing miracles. You've already witnessed him feeding 5,000 people. As Pastor David unfolded that last section of chapter 14 with you. We saw him walk on water. We saw him actually offer walking on water to Peter. And Peter did it. Only to fall and to fail in his faith. And to be restored by Jesus. Brought to the boat. And the storm was calmed. Jesus will continue to be put on display by Matthew. But always with this backdrop of rejection. That is growing. It's mounting. And we'll find the Pharisees repeatedly being moved to kill him. And they will. They'll succeed. And the people who will cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, and will throw palm branches down, will one week later scream for him to be murdered. This is the opposition of our Christ. It's the opposition that the disciples knew all too well. And for us this morning, it's an opposition that we get to engage with as we watch and listen in as Jesus interacts with his rejectors, with his enemies, with his opposers in Matthew chapter 15. It's become increasingly popular. I don't have to tell you this. It's become increasingly popular in your culture, my culture, to soft pedal the truth. Part of the motivation behind 
the resource, the featured resource, ashamed of the gospel, is the need for backbone with the truth. We're in a war for the truth. And many have set as their highest priority to avoid conflict at any cost. That's the cultural norm in which we live. To be first concerned about coming off like, like we, we know something. That, that's a terrifying thought. What an arrogant thing to think that we would actually know the truth. And if we were to be so bold as to speak that truth, how arrogant of us to actually imply by speaking the truth that someone else is in error. So the culture has built within it this toleration of all except those who are intolerant. Our culture thrives on no one being entirely right. This is the heart of post-modernity. We're not entirely right on anything. At best, we have a guess. We think we might know what it might mean to me in this section of the Bible. Certainly never verbalizing that we are right with acceptance. And if we were to be so foolish as to think we're right, if we were to verbalize it, we would bring offense by implying that someone else is wrong. We live in a day that celebrates mutually exclusive truths, which is a logical fallacy. Even within the church, the ecumenical religious movement today has as its banner toleration of any and all, except those who will stand for the truth. So often that soft-spoken Christianity, that soft-pedaled Easy Christianity that doesn't want to offend anyone, that has as its highest priority to make sure that everybody feels comfortable with Jesus, that everybody feels welcome with Jesus. So often that has as as its backing some claim to be like Jesus. This is the way Jesus was. He was gentle. He was soft. He rarely offended people. He avoided conflict. Really? Not so. Not in Matthew chapter 15. The compassionate, gentle Lord of heaven knows nothing of weak, cowardly avoidance of conflict when the truth is at stake. Our Lord was gentle beyond gentle. He was compassionate infinitely. And he was bold, courageous in the face of error. When speaking the truth, when the truth was at stake, Jesus stood up and opposed. And we do well this morning to allow Matthew chapter 15 verses 1 to 20 to inform our worldview. About how we relate to those who would distort the truth. No group of people in the Bible knew the fearless confrontation of Jesus more than the religious leaders of his day. Nobody, nobody knew what he was like more than perhaps maybe the disciples who watched it happen, but no one received it more than the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of his day. These were the most careful religious people known. They worshipped Yahweh, God of the Old Testament. They were concerned more than anyone else with holiness. They promoted more than anyone else careful living for the sake of righteousness before God. And they received the strongest condemnation and confrontation from our Lord Jesus. We've seen him interact already in Matthew with these Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 9, we found our first passage of Jesus engaging with the Pharisees. He passes on. He finds a man named Matthew, Levi, the tax collector at his booth. And he says, follow me. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, that is Matthew's house. Remember, Matthew threw a party for Jesus. He threw a party with his friends present to introduce him to his new Lord, his master. Many tax collectors and sinners, verse 10 says, came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And what happens? The Pharisees saw this. They said to Jesus, why does or to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he contaminated by sinful humanity? 
But when he heard it, that is Jesus, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Make no mistake, the Pharisees got the message in chapter 12, which we just mentioned. We find the Pharisees in full force against Jesus. Claiming that he was doing what he was doing. By the power of Satan. And Jesus says this in verse number 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good. Or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruits. You brood of snakes. You poisonous vipers. How can you speak good? You can't when you're evil. For out of the abundance of the heart. The mouth speaks. The good person out of the good measure brings forth good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. Jesus tells them that on the day of judgment, they're going to give an account for every word they spoke. You see, this confrontation has has been and continues to be. And even today, those who are in the lineage, if you will, of the Pharisees, the spiritual lineage of the Pharisees, which is blind, religious, moral externalism. Church attendance, the right clothes. The right activities. Careful observance of all Christian holidays. Token prayers of grace at the table. Religious tradition, religious externals, mere moralism. And all who embrace it find Jesus opposed to them. And quite willing to say so. So with those conflicts in the past, this morning we come to another dividing line moment with Jesus in Matthew chapter 15. And these Pharisees. We don't have a lot of details about the scenario here. We simply find Matthew turning his attention to Jesus' interaction. And we will give our attention to it this morning. Let's read it together. You follow along as I read. Beginning in verse 1. We're going to go all the way to verse 20 in Matthew chapter 15. And then we'll take the rest of our time to unpack this section. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said... Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching doctrines, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. The disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes in the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. These are the words of God for our closer examination this morning. This morning we'll find... I believe in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 20, this major theme. And I'll read it twice just because it's lengthy this morning. Moral, moral defilement is fundamentally a heart problem. Moral defilement is fundamentally a heart problem that leads to defiled living. Therefore, man's need is for a replacement heart, not a morally regulated life. Jesus alone can change the inside problem. 
Let me say that again. Moral defilement is fundamentally a heart problem that leads to defiled living. Therefore, man's need is for a replacement heart, not a morally regulated life. And Jesus alone can deal with the inside problem. There is no other one who can change the heart of man. This becomes crystal clear to us, this theme here in these verses. As we get to listen in as Jesus confronts, he then condemns, and then he clarifies. So we're going to watch him do that as we go through this text, noticing the details. I trust gleaning as the Spirit gives us insight into how these verses affect our lives as God's people. And how these verses affect our worldview of those around us who claim to be God's people. So let's notice, firstly, then, the confrontation of Jesus. The confrontation of Jesus in verses 1 through 6. The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus, and they assumed, no doubt, that they were coming to confront Jesus, not to be confronted by Jesus. Um, This confrontation was planned to be a confrontation of the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious who's who of their day, Toward Jesus. But what happens in verses 1 through 6 is the direct opposite. Jesus will not answer their question. He never answers the Pharisees' question. And their question is quite simple. The question is why do the disciples break the tradition of the elders? That's their concern. The point of, of application to the disciples breaking the tradition of the elders is their ceasing to wash their hands before they eat. Now, I've got to tell you. Um, I'm all for washing hands, okay? If you know anything about me, Upward tonight is going bowling down in Visalia, okay? Bowling is one of the grossest activities known on the planet. Why? Because you stick your fingers in that hole where everybody else stuck their fingers. You should not do that. That's not wise. You should use one of those spray things or whatever and make your hands clean. On top of it, they're going to eat popcorn tonight. They're going to eat popcorn and then stick their fingers in the In the bowling ball. That's disturbing. I'm all for clean hands. But those kind of clean hands are not what the Pharisees and the scribes are talking about. And we have another cultural disconnect here with our our Bible. Right? We just don't totally get this. The, The Pharisees and the scribes are not talking about, hey, kids, go scrub up before dinner. This is not teaching the kids to put some soap on their hands and rub it together and then rinse it off. That's that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about ceremonial uncleanness because certain regulations from the religious leaders, from the rabbis of the day, were not kept in washing their hands. This is what would be later codified. It would be written down as the Mishnah. The Mishnah would be the commentary on the Old Testament law used by the Jews to outline the extracurricular fences to keep them from sinning. They were traditions of the elders. They were the traditions of men, as Jesus will call them. So these Pharisees come with this one question. Why do you endorse your disciples breaking the traditions of the elders? Namely, by eating their food without washing their hands. And I'm I'm hopeful of the disciples that they, they just weren't keeping the elders' tradition. Again, we don't grasp this. There's an entire section of the Mishnah committed to hands. If you used a certain amount of water on one hand, that one hand would be purified. But if, oh foolish you, use that same amount of water on both hands and did double duty, you were defiled ceremonially. I mean, it's down to the most minute detail of what it is to clean pots and pans, all for the sake, in theory, of preserving holiness before God. But Jesus responds not with an answer, but with a counterattack question. You see, Jesus avoids the confrontation of the Pharisees and scribes because he has his own confrontation to bring. And he does so in verse number three. He answered them with a question. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Notice what Jesus says. He goes at this as a theological problem with the religious leaders of the day. They have a misplaced authority. Don't miss your 
your simple reading here. The tradition of the elders versus the commandment of God. You see that on your page? Those are contrasting realities. And Jesus is clearly pointing to their misplaced authority. They have their primary concern on the tradition of the elders. Jesus' primary concern is on the commandment of God. And notice their misplaced allegiance. For the sake of their tradition, they were willing to sin. Their righteousness was sin, and it was for the sake of tradition. They were willing to set aside God's word and to make it void, as he'll say in just a moment in verse number 6, for the sake of preserving what had always been and what their fathers had said and what their grandfathers had said about external moral righteousness. Notice the application that Jesus uses. Verse number four, down through verse number six, we find what is commonly called in in Mark's account, Corbin, Corbin. Matthew simply explains it to us. The idea of Corbin was within Jewish law. If you would just commit your funds to religious activity, to God's work, you didn't have to use those same funds for your obligation to care for your parents. I don't know if you're aware, but there was no welfare system. There were no food stamps. There was no government aid. There were no bailouts. It was family. And the the Jewish people were commanded as children that they would prepare to take care of their parents. There was no retirement fund. There were 401ks did not exist. So the tradition of the elders allowed for this loophole. If you said that your money was being used for God and if you invested your money in some venue that would give you that credence, you could avoid doing exactly what God had commanded you. Notice verse 5. You say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained, mom and dad, I'm sorry. What I would have had for you, I've already used it up. I gave it for God. He need not honor his father. Verse 6. Now notice the implications of that. So for the sake of your tradition, there's that misplaced allegiance. You have made void the word of God. The end result of the the Pharisees' error was a rejection of God's perfect word, his perfect standard. Their self-adjusted righteousness was only further damning their blind hearts to eternal holy wrath from God. You see, in in their pursuit of righteousness, in their pursuit of good things that were traditions of their fathers and grandfathers, they were abandoning the very righteous standard to which they had been called. And they were storing up for themselves wrath from God. These are the enemies of the gospel. They are the legalists. They are the Pharisees. They are those who would set aside the word for the sake of mere external moral conformity say, well, we don't have Pharisees in any of the churches that I've been in. Really, consider a few thoughts. Jesus is not constrained nor impressed by the traditions of human beings and their followers. You say the Pharisees don't exist. We're not in the nation of Israel. True. And we have no classification here in our communities in the valley for Pharisees. I mean, we don't have the Pharisee gathering they don't ride around on scooters during the parades i mean we don't have the pharisees okay we don't have this group but we certainly have their offspring spiritually and jesus is unimpressed by religious church going dead blind spiritually forfeited people jesus is fearless in confrontation with these people Clean externals mean nothing to God if they are the means of earning his favor. Do you understand that? Let's 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 just kind of bring it down to where we where we live. God is not impressed that you're here this morning. Nor has he ever been impressed that you were at church. Ever. You see, God is never impressed By anything other than the perfect righteousness of his son. And if his favor is shown to you. And if you are the recipient of his grace and his love and his care as a father. It is only because 
what we sang in our first song is true of you. In Christ alone you stand. God has never noticed and been impressed by any of your external activities. If they have been done to earn his favor. All those righteousness, all those righteous activities, all those mere externals are filth before God. As David mentioned in our adult Sunday school class, the sacrifices of a wicked heart are stench that make God want to vomit. The gospel is not conformalism. It's transformalism. You get that? The gospel transforms. It doesn't, it doesn't ask people to conform. This is the, the, the downfall of the liberal movement theologically that says that the Bible is just a, a good book and it just helps people live better. Hey, you want to have a better marriage? Why don't you use the Bible's principles? Listen, if you use the Bible's principles and you have a better marriage and you have an unchanged heart, all you have done in having the Bible in your life has stored up more wrath from God toward you. And your righteousness externally is mere Mere externalism. The wrath of God will come. This is the confrontation of Jesus. These externalists are put on the hot seat. And he pegs them for who they really are from the inside. Now notice Jesus won't rest. So he goes into the second aspect. or The second scene if you will of Matthew chapter 15. And we go from the confrontation now to the condemnation. And it's as if we're already kind of like well Jesus. Whoa. Like whoa. They just asked a they just asked an honest question. And you're already riled up about it. Absolutely, because we're talking about truth. We're talking about the heart and there's nothing closer to the heart of Christ than the gospel itself. So we find the condemnation in verse number seven. He quotes from Isaiah and applies it to these people. This would have been hard to hear. As we'll find out in just a few verses, you hypocrites. Um, the Greek word that's used here means hypocrites. That's what he said. He looked them in the face and he said, you hypocrites. Why? Because what Isaiah prophesied was about your kind of people. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Notice what is true about the condemned people that Jesus is confronting. Do you see it? Don't miss verse number eight and verse number nine. What are two things that are true about the people being confronted and condemned by Jesus? Number one, they honor God with their mouths. They say nice things about God. These are not slanderers. These are not people who like to use the name of Christ and the name of God creatively with their cursing. These are not the the people that are marked for their ungodliness, their total paganism and humanism. These are people who honor God with their lips. They sing the right songs. They say the right things. They know all the lingo. They sound like they're really committed. They even know the committed lingo. What else is true about these people? Verse number nine. They worship. They worship God. They don't worship pagan deities. You don't find these people offering up human sacrifices to Satan. These are people who worship Yahweh. And Jesus confronts these people and he says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right. You honor me with your speech. You sing the right things. You say the right things. You get it all right in your speech, but your heart is as far from me as it can be. You worship me. You lift hands to me. You pray to me. You gather with my people in my presence. And all the while, you are most concerned about making your own commandments doctrine. This is a strong condemnation and a fearful one for us to consider this morning. There are myriad of myriad of people who will experience Matthew 7 at the last day. 
who will say, Lord, Lord, master, master, I did this and that in your name. And they will receive with the the gaze of Christ these words. Depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Because all righteousness apart from a new heart is mere sinfulness in the eyes of a holy God. So let me ask you a couple of difficult questions. Do you find yourself unable to get into worship if the music isn't just right or the clothes of those around you take up your attention? Do you struggle to connect with people who don't have the same choice in schooling for their children or some other family function? Are those things paramount? Are those things elevated to the place where they become the basis of unity? They become the basis of fellowship. Is it the routine here in the green seats in the little theater? Is it the routine that makes this worship for you? I mean, is this an event? Or is what makes this worship you personally with your brothers and sisters relating to your God? Is it motions? Is it externals? Or is it heart living on display? Because if lesser things, mere traditions, are elevated to primary status or fellowship and unity, or if routine and ritual become the basis of checking off worship, watch out. Hypocrisy may be the label that Jesus uses for us. So he confronts head on. And then Jesus condemns. Eye to eye, face to face, with people who talk right about God and who worship God externally, but who have hearts that are as far from Him as can be, and whose primary concern is their own commandments. Moral defilement is fundamentally a heart problem that leads to defiled living. Therefore, man's need is for a replacement heart, not morally. Regulated living. Jesus alone can change the inside problem. Okay. Let's look then finally at the clarification. The last 10 verses and we'll go through these relatively quickly. The Pharisees, for all that we know from Matthew's record, leave. And for good reason. Uh, They have received what Jesus said and we'll find that they understood enough to know what he was saying about them. Jesus calls the people, this is the multitude of people, and he gets them close and he says, hear and understand. Here is Jesus' clarification to those who were under the teaching of the Pharisees, including the disciples. Don't miss that. The disciples, the Jewish men that made up the twelve, were were brought up under the Pharisees. I mean, these were the religious people to which they looked. These are the older men that they respected. These were the rabbis and the teachers and the people surely were amazed that he was willing, that is, Jesus was willing to stand and confront with such boldness and clarity. So he clarifies his point here in verse number 10. Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. He says, don't buy the lie of the Pharisees that says it's all about the externals. It's about what's on your hands. It's about the food that you stick in your mouth. Mark will apply this to the Gentile church and will tell them he's freeing up. He's he's this is a precursor to the freedom in food laws. Jesus says it's not about the food or the drink or the cleanliness of the hands that is true defilement or cleanliness. Oh, it's something much greater than that. It's what comes out of that mouth. That's what defiles a person. The disciples come to him and let him know that the Pharisees were offended. Jesus stands in stark contrast to the current tide of relativism and postmodern thinking as he disregards his offense. Do you realize that? He just disregards his offense. He's not concerned about the offense because the ones offended are false teachers who are in error. In fact, Jesus goes from seeker unfriendly to more seeker unfriendly in these verses. Notice what he says in verse number 12. 
Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard the saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. In other words, every false plant, anything claiming to be from my Father that's not, it's going to get plucked up and burned anyway. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. Error is to be confronted and condemned without apology by those who would follow the example of Christ. He set the example. He's unashamed of his truth. The Apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. We must we must take away from Matthew 15 and the example of Christ an unashamed defense in the face of error. It is not okay to say, yeah, they have a little different perspective when it comes to the truths of the gospel. Peter then steps up, as he often does, and speaks for the group. Almost wonder if they were hoping to get an explanation from Jesus by telling him that the Pharisees were offended. Uh, Because then Peter finally just says, we we don't get it. Like, we we need help. Um, You can almost see the the 11 standing behind him nodding. Yeah, like we're with him. Uh, Peter does this throughout his ministry in the life of Christ. He speaks up and he receives chiding, and then clarification from Christ. First, Christ chides him and them and says, are you also still without understanding? I mean, even you don't understand. We see this progress in the Pharisee or in the disciples, rather, of no understanding, but devotion and a growing understanding of what would take place all the way up to the very the very front end of the cross. The disciples are still confused. And Jesus graciously explains and explains and explains. And we find his explanation particularly pointed here. Verse 17. Jesus makes the clarification. Do you not see or understand that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? This is physical expulsion. Physical entry, this is food. And Jesus is saying, food has a very temporary part in the body's life. It comes and it goes. It has no eternal consequence. Um, You may have a footnote at the bottom of your translation. If you have an ESV, you probably have a footnote there. By the end of verse 17, that is that it says expelled into the latrine. It's nice of the ESV translators to leave that part out. You get the idea. So did the disciples. Do you not get it? Food just goes in the mouth, down the stomach, and out. And it's gone. And Jesus is, he's, he's carefully explaining, he's clarifying here, because in verse 18, he uses a contrast word, one of those words that ought to jump off the page at us as we study our Bible. But, but, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. So Jesus says, oh, don't get, don't get me wrong. The mouth is key. It's just not what's going in it. What's the problem is what's coming out of it, because what comes out of it is directly connected to the heart of man. And so the mouth becomes the tattletale of the heart. This is James chapter 4. This is Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus told the disciples... The same thing about the Pharisees, that you would know them by their fruit, namely their speech. So food, regardless of whether it's dirty or eaten with clean hands, merely passes through the body and is waste. Words, on the other hand, regardless of external traditions, always expose the heart. And the heart is the defiling agent of man. So Jesus is right back to where we were in the Sermon on the Mount. He's all about his kingdom and he's all about the heart. Jesus centers on the heart. Notice his explanation for out of the heart. Here's what comes. Wicked thinking. Murder. Adultery. Pornea, that is any and all sexual deviation, sexual immorality. Theft. Lying. False witness. And slander that is lying to tear another down. These sinful 
expressions are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Man has a heart problem that makes the dirt on his hands meaningless by contrast. You see that? Jesus doesn't concern himself with whether or not the disciples had the right amount of water when they washed up to eat the meal together. He's much, much more concerned about the heart condition of his disciples. And he confronts the Pharisees because they would gladly set aside the heart for the sake of making sure the outside looked right. So, brothers and sisters, and those who are here who may not be brothers and sisters, if you find yourself relying on your clean hands, your mere rituals, your externals, your checkboxes, I read my Bible. I went to church. I prayed for food. I worshiped. If you find yourself relying on those clean hands to impress God, Jesus informs you that that's a futile exercise because God's looking directly at your filthy, dead heart. And so for us this morning, it's meaningful for us if we have a new heart, to understand that the gospel still informs the way we look at external activity. And if you're here as a traditionalist, if you're merely religious, Jesus confronts you face to face. The tragedy of the blind hypocrisy of the Pharisees and all who follow them, even some who may follow them today, here. You may be children of the Pharisees spiritually. The tragedy of that is that that blind hypocrisy leads to ignoring and even hating the only one who has kept the heart pure and undefiled and thus the only one who can be a substitute righteousness on your behalf. And the Pharisees would never see Jesus. Their blindness would persist until they killed him. This was the plight of the enemies of Christ. Moral defilement is fundamentally a heart problem that leads to defiled living. Therefore, man's need is for a replacement heart, not morally regulated life. Only Jesus can change the heart. So the gospel is the remedy. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the remedy to the problem. What do we do with Jesus? It all rests on how we respond to Jesus. The gospel, that is the good news, the promise that Jesus will stand in. And will be the one who bears the wrath of God at the cross. And will be the one who transfers righteousness to sinful humanity. For all those who will believe, that good news is the remedy for our defiled hearts. And for those of us who are in Christ, this is our hope. This is our song. This is what we live for. And that same gospel is the cause for motivation to walk in obedience to God. You say, what's the difference between one who is merely external, but who lives a morally good life in cultural sense, and the believer who also lives a very similar morally good life? What's the difference? If we're looking from our vantage point, nothing. But God does not look at the externals. He looks directly at the heart. And so everything is different because the motivation is altered by the gospel. For the ones who are in Christ... Obedience becomes an act of grateful allegiance. Not a pursuit of notice from God. Those who are in Christ respond in obedience because they have been declared righteous. Not so they can earn righteousness. There are only two groups of people. Those earning their own favor with God. Or those who rest and by faith, trust the perfect earning of righteousness and favor in Christ. A couple thoughts by application that will be done. Do you live like you live because you've been justified or because you're hopeful that God will notice your living? Let me say that again. Do you live like you live? Do you do what you do? Because you have received righteousness from God, it's a response. 
It's an effect. It's a, it's a product of what's happened to you. Or do you live like you do, hoping that God will be pleased? Do you find yourself constantly afraid that God is measuring you out? Are you the kind of person that when you have a flat tire, you think, this is because I got mad at my wife this morning? That's why. Because God is sitting there and he's waiting. Nope. Bad. Boom. Oh, good. All right. Well, we'll give you some points on that. Ah, nope. No. Oh, good. Went to church. If that's our mindset, listen, beloved, if that's our mindset, we are heading towards an eternity apart from God. So it is worthy. It's worthy question to ask. Why do I do what I do? Is it because my heart has been changed and with a new heart comes new desires and new perspective and new motivation that drives me in a new direction? Or is it because I want to get a new heart? So I do what I do to try to earn it. Holiness comes from the inside out, not from the outside in. You can't do enough holy things on the outside to ever change who you are on the inside. And in a moment, God, through Jesus Christ, can change the inside and forever alter the outside. In progressive sanctification, progressive holiness through the Christian life. Question number two, do you actively seek to honor God more than the traditions of men? What do you value more? Is it a careful understanding of what God has said and what he has called us to? Or is it the opinions of those around you? In other words, are you constrained by the fear of God or are you constrained by the fear of man? What is it that you value more? Your attitude behind your actions tells the story. And number three, are you willing to speak the truth as Jesus did toward error? I think that's a secondary application from the text. I think Matthew wants us to be overwhelmed with the, the heart the heart problem. I think that's his first issue. But I think a secondary application has to be, are we willing to live this kind of life? I mean, brothers and sisters, you know, right, if you start confronting and condemning, you know that if you start saying, hey, God says that's not true. When somebody makes a passing comment like, hey, all the the roads lead to the same place, right? I mean, I have faith. We're all heading the same direction, right? You find yourself in that moment willing to say, no, that's not right. Because actually, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. You see, when we begin to emulate Jesus in confronting and condemning false doctrine, we can be prepared to take much more seriously His words to the disciples who were terrified of persecution. We will suffer, but we will suffer with our Christ. If we will learn to speak the truth and defend the truth as Jesus did in the face of error. I told someone this week we were at lunch together and I said, this is a worthy cause to get beat up. This was worthy enough of a cause for Peter who says, I'm just totally not getting it to later in his life say, hang me upside down. I don't want to be crucified like my Christ. Crucify me, fine. Just make sure I'm upside down. That's the kind of devotion that comes from this worthy truth that we've been entrusted with as God's people. So, you live like you do because you've been justified or to try to earn justification. Do you actively seek to honor God, not the traditions of men? And are you willing to speak the truth as Jesus did? Matthew 15, 1 to 20. So much more we could do here, but we were way out of time. And I want to take a few moments to remember the price that was paid to give us these new hearts as God's people. So let's pray and thank the Lord for this study. Thank you, Lord, for this. Thank you for giving us Matthew 15, 1 to 20. Thank you for confronting us as you 
provided us a record with Jesus confronting the Pharisees. You confront us, and again, even as your people who have new hearts, we find ourselves drawn back into these subtle traps of impressing you or of earning your favor, of hoping you'll love us more because of the things we did, rather than being overwhelmed and focused on the new heart that was granted to us sheerly by grace through the work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the reminder that there is no righteousness apart from Christ. It is all filth apart from His redeeming, transforming work. Teach our hearts to live according to the gospel by which we've been called and changed, radically altered. May we do what we do not to earn your favor, but because you have set your favor on us through the merit of your Son. May we stand boldly for the truth, confronting error, setting setting the record straight for the sake of your kingdom, not for our own agenda, not for our own pride, not to be known as the ones who had the right answer, but so that others may receive the truth of the gospel, that you might break other hearts, crushing them to the end of themselves and rescuing them through our proclamation of the truth. May we do this with hearts filled with compassion on those who are blind. And may we boldly stand against those who are blindly leading them in more blindness. Help us to apply, Father. Thank you more than all of these other things. Thank you for the opportunity to come to this text this morning with new hearts. It's our joy to remember it now for these final moments of our time together. I pray that you would use this institution that you created, that you commanded of us to remind us of what we may be forgetful of this morning. That blood was shed, body was torn, so that we might receive the righteousness that only you could provide through your Son. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.